0: let's ask the lord's blessing on our time if you would bow with me father thank you for this day that you have given to us uh this is the day that the lord has made and we will be glad and rejoice in it thank you so much for the privilege that we have to come together for the sole purpose of um of getting to know you better and um through your word the soul business is the soul business um helping our souls to draw nigh unto you, and you will draw nigh unto us. Thank you for these ladies and for their hunger. Thank you for our new women. I pray, Father, that they will be excited about this study, an in-depth study, um, as we look through the Old Testament and find you, Old Testament Christology. We are looking for you. In the Old Testament, and we find you just about on every page, especially when we come to the study of Joseph, which we will begin today. He is just such a perfect picture of you in so many ways. We can touch his life from birth almost to death and find you there. Your first coming and your second coming. It's so exciting, all the things I've learned over the summer months. And thank you, Lord, for health. Thank you for everyone who is able to be here. We pray for new ladies to be able to join us every, every day of this year. We don't know what you have in store, but uh, we know that you are in control. If you come back, that would even be greater. <laughs> now I just pray that I might decrease and you would increase, that you would be honored and gloried, glorified in everything that we say and everything that we think. Help us to focus on what you have to say to us through your spirit, using your word. For we do ask these things, knowing that they are in accordance with the will of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do ask. Amen. Well, the episode that serves as our launching pad for this study on finding Christ in the Old Testament is the unrecorded Emmaus Road Sermon, which I have also subtitled the Spiritual Heartburn Sermon. Why? Because the two men who were joined by Christ on the road to Emmaus, after they heard him teach for about two hours, showing himself in the Old Testament to them, they said, did not our heart burn within us? So this is the, heartburn sermon. Of course, it's not recorded for us, so we're speculating about what he must have said, might have said. Of course, he was unrecognized by those two disciples. They were not apostles. They were disciples. One of them, we know his name was Cleopas. We don't know who the other one was. Could have been his wife, for all we know. But they were disciples, and they were despondent, and they were discouraged, and they were in the depths of despair when the resurrected Lord Jesus came alongside of them as they're journeying from Jerusalem, they've got their backs to the holy city and they're going home to their little village in Emmaus. What day was it? What was the day? The greatest day on planet? Resurrection Sunday. It was Resurrection Sunday afternoon. And these two disciples had already heard the reports of the women who had been to the empty tomb. They heard their reports before they left for Emmaus. They knew that the women said, his tomb is empty. We saw angels. The angels said, he has risen as he said. We even saw him. Some of them even saw him resurrected. And then they had also heard the reports of two apostles, Peter and John. And yet, it's hard for us to fathom this, isn't it? Because we have the advantage of hindsight. But they were despairing and despondent. Why? I guess they didn't believe the reports is all I can say. And so they had their backs to the empty tomb and uh, to to Calvary. And they were going back to their pre-Jesus lives. Why? Why? Well, it's because they simply could not hurdle, they could not get over the great stumbling block of his crucifixion. Especially because he was put to open shame by the cursed death of hanging on a tree. And you see the Bible, the Lord in Deuteronomy 21, 23 said, Cursed is every man that hangeth on a tree. So it didn't make sense. That, that, you know, um, if he was the true Messiah, which they really had thought he was, then why would God allow the true Messiah of Israel to suffer and die by means of a death that he himself had cursed? Now you can understand from their perspective, why that would be difficult, right? They didn't understand that he literally became the curse of sin for us, didn't he? They didn't, they didn't understand that. And all they can conclude is that he must not be the one that they thought he was. And they were very, very perplexed and very sad. Um, even if they, you know, all things aside, Jesus was dead, they saw him die. He was dead. And a dead Messiah can't save anybody. Uh, and he certainly can't set up a kingdom. You can't have a kingdom without a king. So that's their conclusion. But the truth is that he wasn't dead, was he? No, in fact, he was their new traveling companion, incognito. He, didn't, he wanted them to focus on his words and not on who he was. So he, they didn't recognize him. And uh, they thought he was rather naive because when he joins them, he says, well, why are you so sad and what's going on? And they think, oh, this guy's really out of it. How could he not know what had just happened in Jerusalem? Everybody knew what had just happened. And so they explained the whole story to him. And then he caught them completely by surprise when suddenly this really quiet, gentle, nice guy says to them, what? Yes, oh, fools. (laughs) Now, you don't want to hear Jesus call you that, do you? Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did you notice that word? All, all that the prophets have spoken. And then he said, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and then to enter into his glory? What he was saying is it was absolutely mandatory. And that had been taught throughout the whole Old Testament. Moses, the prophets, the whole Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi. It had been taught over and over and over again that the Christ would suffer first before he would then enter into his glory. He was to be the sin substitute savior. And so, you know, at the very beginning, Genesis 315, didn't it say that his heel would be bruised? Isn't that suffering? What about Abraham sacrificing Isaac? Wasn't that sin substitution? Of course, Isaac wasn't really the sin substitute because his death would have saved nobody, so they used the animal, the ram instead. But the whole Bible, all those sacrifices, picture a sin substitute. He just, you know, over and over and over again, it shows us that. And so that's why he called them fools. How could you not have seen that? And then, of course, he... um, he he gave a two-hour sermon because Emmaus was about seven miles. I figured it t- took him about two hours, took them about two hours to get there. Um, and I don't know what he said. I wish it was recorded for us. It took him two hours. It's going to take us about 22 years <laughs> because we began last year, and we didn't even get through the first book, Genesis, did we? We got all the way through, um, you know, the creation and Adam and Abel, and Seth, and and Noah, and then the first three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we stopped with who? Joseph. So that's where we're going to pick up. Years ago, I taught the book of Genesis, probably 20 years ago by now, the way time flies. Um, And I taught all the way through the same place, you know, stopped at Joseph, and people have asked me for years, when are you going to do Joseph? Why did you stop and not teach on Joseph? And I thought, well, there's so many wonderful commentaries out there about Joseph. We'll just move on. We went to another subject. I don't remember what it was. But, but anyway, here's the answer to that question. When are you going to teach Joseph? Right now. <laughs> Finally. We're going to study Joseph. We're going to go a little faster than I would have if I was doing every detail of his life. You can tell if I'm going to cover four chapters today. But we now come to Joseph and I would say that um, surely Jesus must have highlighted on the Emmaus Road, he must have highlighted the life of of Joseph as he was teaching. You know, some things I can say dogmatically, I know he must have mentioned Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium. If you don't know that verse, we talk about it all the time. That's where it says the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman, the coming Savior, the promised one would crush the serpent's head, and he would bruise his heel. That's the first time the gospel was actually uh, mentioned to man. I know he talked about that, and I know, I'm sure, he probably also touched on Abraham offering Isaac up there on Mount Moriah, which was exactly the same place where Jesus was crucified. And here's another subject I am sure he touched on was the life of Joseph. Joseph was God's first chosen deliverer of his people, now, he was a physical deliverer of his people, Israel. Israel's a small infant nation right now, and there's only 70 people in his family. He delivered them by giving them the bread of life, didn't he? Otherwise, they would have perished in the famine. So he's God's first chosen deliverer. Jesus is the last deliverer, and he is both a physical and a spiritual deliverer. Joseph's um, life circumstances, you know, he was hated and envied by his own brothers. He was uh, rejected by them. He was betrayed by them. He was sold by them for 20 pieces of silver, sold as a slave. His robe was stripped from him. He was put to shame and humiliation in, first of all, a pit an empty well, a cistern, dry cistern, and later on he was thrown into a prison. He suffered all of that first before he was then exalted to the right hand of power. And all that pictures who? I could almost be talking about Jesus, couldn't I? As I said some of those things. Well, with 28% of Genesis, 28% of the book of Genesis dedicated to Joseph, covers 14 chapters he's the last of seven prominent men in the book of Genesis who are those seven and wouldn't you know it'd be seven God's favorite number who are the seven prominent men in Genesis well you've got Adam of course Abel Noah Abraham Isaac Jacob and Joseph so he's the seventh one Um, so with all that, I would say that definitely Jesus included him in his quick study of Old Testament Christology, Christology 101 is what he gave a class on that day. The fact is that if we can, we can touch the life of Joseph at almost any point uh, from his birth on and find a certain aspect of the person or the work of Christ portrayed to us. There's actually, now when I was going to do this study this summer, I was trying to think of my outline, you know, how am I going to approach his life? What's the outline going to be? And um, there's a lot of outlines for the life of Joseph that you can find in different commentators. Look at Harold Wilmington. He probably has a great one. Um, So I was trying to decide that, and then I came across somebody who said, that he developed his own outline for his life. Did you know that? Joseph gave the own, his own outline for his life. And he did so by the names of his two sons. He actually named his sons. His father, Jacob, remember he didn't name the sons except for uh, Benjamin. He let the mothers name them. But Joseph named his two sons. He named his firstborn Manasseh. Manasseh means in Hebrew, God made me forget all my toil. God helped me forget my toil, my troubles, my tribulations. Ephraim, his second born son, his name means God caused me to be fruitful in my affliction. So what he is basically saying there is that his early years, the first part of his life was full of toil and affliction, troubles and afflictions, while his latter years were those that were abundant with forgiveness and fruitfulness. So, using his outline for his life, we're going to look, first of all, at his years of toil and affliction, which actually picture the suffering Savior, the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're going to look at his years. Joseph's years of forgetting and fruitfulness. Which picture Christ in his second coming. When he comes again. Is he going to forgive Israel. For what she did in rejecting him. Mm-hmm. Is, she gonna be, is he going to be fruitful? Oh yeah. So that's very fascinating. Joseph's life. Pictures the first and second comings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, at the time of Joseph's birth, Jacob had how many other sons? He was the 11th. So he had 10 older brothers, right? 10 older brothers and at least one sister. Now, it does tell us in the scripture that Jacob had daughters, plural. And I'm sure with four mothers, there were daughters, plural. But there's only one who is named, and her name is Dinah. And the reason she is named is because something special happened to her. All of those, his, his, 11, his ten brothers and his one sister, and probably other sisters, were born within seven years of each other. So they are all close in age. Jacob's family, at the time of his birth, of Joseph's birth, was living up in northern Mesopotamia. In a city called Haran, um, they were living with his uncle Laban, his mother's brother. His mother was Rachel, Laban was her brother, and he became his double father-in-law. <laughs> I know, it gets worse as we go through this. Um, but that's the area of Syria, so they were, it's pretty far from Canaan. Why was Jacob up there? Well, he had to flee because his twin brother Esau wanted to do what to him? Kill him. him. Wanted to murder him because he had tricked their father Isaac into giving him. Now, he was the second born twin, Jacob was, but he tricked, deceived his father into giving him the first born blessing, meaning he would carry on the messianic line. He already had the firstborn birthright, the double portion, because his brother had flippantly traded it for a bowl of beans, basically, right? (laughs) He should have, Jacob should have waited on the Lord because the Lord had promised him the blessing. He promised it through his mother when she was still pregnant with both of them, but he didn't wait on the Lord and he tried to take everything into his own hands and his mother helped him out. So, Esau, when he found out, was hot to trot. He was a big, burly guy, and he wanted to kill his brother. And so um, Jacob fled up to Haran. And in Haran, he spent a long 20 years reaping what he had sown. He was a deceiver, but he met a master deceiver in his uncle Laban. So he spent 20 years in in Laban's school of hard knocks, which was really God's school. Now, Laban, we talked about, this is all review. Laban was a picture or a type of who? Anti, Antichrist. He was a tool of Satan. And if Laban had had his way, Jacob would have served him all his life. He never would have let Jacob return to the promised land, at least not with his family. And what would have happened? Well, Israel, the nation that came from Jacob's loins, would have eventually been absorbed into the people of Mesopotamia. They would have amalgamated. They would have intermarried. And therefore, God's covenant promises would have all fallen null and void. But, of course, Laban did not get his way, did he? (laughs) Well, um, when Joseph was finally born to Rachel, she had been barren, just like all the patriarch's wives had conception problems, didn't they? You ever think about why that was? Sarah had a really big problem, didn't she? She was not only barren all her childbearing years, but then she was even postmenopausal. I mean that's a real problem, if you want to have a child. <laughs> um, and then there was Ray, uh, Rebecca, and she was she was barren for a long time before she gave birth to the twins Esau and Jacob. And Rachel, Jacob's mother, I mean Joseph's mother, was barren. Remember all this? she she tried mandrakes and she tried all kinds of things to try to get pregnant. So uh, why why were all the patriarchs' wives um barren and had had conception problems. The Lord was showing us through them that uh nothing is impossible with God. Right? And he was showing that because one day he would come into this earth in a really impossible way. Humanly, because he was born of a virgin. I mean, that's even more difficult than postmenopausal, I guess. I guess. <laughs> So when Joseph finally came along, he was the joy and delight of his parents. Um, Jacob was really happy because Rachel finally stopped complaining, you know. And he loved Rachel, didn't he? He really loved, he worked basically 14 years for her. Now Joseph's name is interesting because his name means two things in Hebrew. And they're actually opposite of each other. His name means taken away... And added to. Now that's really strange. But again. Even in his name. He is pointing to Jesus. Because Jesus had to be taken away. Before he could add to. Except a grain of corn be planted into the ground. It cannot spring forth. And bring forth much fruit. He had to die. Before he could have his church. And add to. The, the day the church was born. Did it get added to? Has it been added to ever since? Yes. So even his name points to Jesus. When he was approximately six or seven years old, Joseph probably remembered being snatched up into his mother's arms, hoisted onto a camel. I'm in chapter 31 and taken at the highest speed possible for a family caravan, which doesn't move too fast from his grandfather Laban. Jacob had wanted to get away from him for quite a while. And finally, the Lord said, now's the time. Laban and his sons were out in the field far away, shearing sheep. And so Jacob gathered up his family and they hightailed out of there. Um, Three days later, Laban heard about the escape and he gathered his forces and pursued in great haste after Jacob and his family. Couldn't move very fast with all those wives and servants and children, could he? So he pursued after him, which reminds you of another great escape, doesn't it? When Israel was leaving Egypt and Pharaoh pursued after them. Well, when he got to him in the very next day, he was probably, here was his plan. He was probably going to kill Jacob and then take his daughters and their handmaids and all his grandchildren back to Haran. But that night, what happened? God sent a dream to Laban. And I love that dream because basically God said in the dream, don't you dare touch my servant Jacob. Don't even speak against him. And Laban got it. (laughs) It got his attention and he didn't dare do anything to Jacob. The Lord kept his promise. Remember when Jacob was fleeing from Esau? Talk about a guy who went from the frying pan into the fire, from Esau to Laban. And then backwards, he went from Laban to Esau because he had to have a reunion with Esau, who's coming up with 400 soldiers to meet him. But anyway, when he was escaping from Esau, he spent the night at a place where there was a, a stone he used for his pillow. And what did he have that night? a dream about a ladder that reached up into heaven and he saw the Lord Jesus Christ the preincarnate Christ at the top of the ladder angels were ascending and descending on that ladder well he had had that dream and in the dream the Lord told him he would re- he would return him he didn't tell him 20 years later but he said you will return safely back to this land to Canaan i will take care of that So, and he always keeps his promises, doesn't he? So he was safe from Laban and also from Esau. Well, sometime later, of course, there was that night at the Jabbok where he wrestled all night with the Lord and um, finally went from wrestling to clinging. Yay. That was the good part, clinging to the Lord instead of trying to do everything in his own strength And the Lord had to touch the hollow of his thigh, and he came limping out of that experience, crossed back over the Jabbok, and then met his brother. His brother all of a sudden had a total heart change because he saw how old he'd gotten. (laughs) Of course, he was the same age, but, uh, you know, you never notice how old you are. You notice how old, wow, you've really aged, sister. Uh, but when he saw his brother come limping out to him, he just had a, I mean, what was going to be a scary prospect became a very emotional uh, reunion, didn't it? Because they were hugging and kissing and crying, and it was a beautiful scene. Well, sometime after that, Joseph's family did settle in Canaan, and uh, I'm sure that, it, this is chapter 34, I'm just moving around so fast here. Uh, there was probably an incident that really st- struck out in um in joseph's mind now this this must have been at least maybe 10 years later because the boys and girls are older his half sister dinah i don't know why she was on her own and who let her do this but it says in 34 1 and dinah the daughter of leah which she bare unto jacob went out to see the daughters of the land now she should never been alone and she should never have been um fellowshipping with the daughters of, you know, that was the Canaanite daughters, the pagan daughters. And she went into the city of Shechem, which, uh, was not a good city. It was a pagan city. Um, actually turned out to be better people than, than her brothers. Anyway, um, the prince of that city who was also named Shechem, that gets kind of confusing. The city is Shechem and his name is Shechem. He sees her immediately falls in love and he rapes her. So she was raped by the prince of Shechem, and that was followed by chapter 34 as a terrible chapter to read. But what happens is that um, when Jacob finds out about this, look, look at verse 5. Jacob heard that, that he, the prince, had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his cattle in the field, and Jacob held his peace until they were come. He was a sad father, if you want to know the truth he didn't take the leadership role and do something about his daughter's rape. What he did is he held his peace and he waited till his sons came home from being out in the field with the cattle and he let let them take over the situation. That was a big mistake. Big mistake. Because they go into the city and they make this deal with the king and his son and they say uh, the, the, the son really loves Dinah and he wants to marry her. And he says, I'll do anything to have her, you know, to marry her. And um, and then the king says, and we'd love to have all of your daughters. We'd like to give us you our daughters and you can give us your daughters and we'll just intermarry. And they said, "Okay, that sounds like a good deal. But you guys all have to be circumcised. Well, it says that they did that deceitfully. Look at verse 13 deceitfully. They were chips off their old father, weren't they? He was a deceiver and they deceivers. They agreed to that, but it was deceitfully. So when all the men of the city got circumcised and they were newly circumcised where you're in pain and, you, you know, not a lot of strength. I guess you're laying in bed. I don't know. <laughs> but um, they, they came into the city, the brothers, especially Simeon and Levi. They were the two main culprits, and they slaughtered every man in that city. That's not good, is it? What kind of testimony for the Lord is that? This is the family that's supposed to be the true Jehovah's Witnesses. And they go in and deceive and then kill. Then the other brothers um, join them as they loot the city. They take everything out of all their homes. They take all their cattle. They take everything. And they even kidnap all the wives and children. That is horrible, horrible, horrible. And then when Jacob finds out about it, he's furious. He doesn't do much. But here's what he says to his uh, sons. Look at verse 30. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, ye have troubled me. Now notice how many times he talks about himself, okay? Ye have troubled me to make me to stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canites and the Parasites, And I, being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. I don't know how many times that is. He says, I, me, my. It's all about him, isn't it? He says, you've made me to stink. They're going to come against me. Eight times. What should he have been concerned about? His daughter and the, peop- the innocent people that had been murdered and their, their families that are left behind. And he should have been concerned about God. This should have been, you know, you have made God's name to stink among these people. What kind of witnesses are you? And he, do- he doesn't do anything to um, punish them. He's really, one of your homework questions is what kind of father do you think Jacob was? Wasn't a very good father. He was a very passive father and rather self-centered. I hate to even say that after he, you know, clung to the Lord, he goes on to become Jacob again. He fluctuates between Jacob and Israel. Israel means prince of God, but he doesn't always act like the prince of God. So Dinah lost her innocence and her brothers lost their integrity. Was Joseph involved in that? no he wasn't involved in that well the family had to make a quick escape (laughs) needless to say from the angry citizens of that area there's other people living there you know around Shechem other Canaanites and parasites and uh, parasites and mosquitoes and (laughs) I was thinking you know (laughs) we're supposed to be thankful for everything aren't we doesn't the Bible say be thankful for everything are you thankful for the mosquitoes do you have them up here in Lee County? Yeah. They are they're like uh, birds down in Moore County. <laughs> I'm covered with helicopters, yes. And I got to thinking, how can I be thankful for the mosquitoes? Ah, I can be thankful because they show me how to be thankful without the mosquitoes. You know? We're to be <laughs> we can rejoice that we don't have them all the time. There you go. <laughs> Oh, anyway, and we need another hurricane to blow them out. I guess one's coming our way. So they had to make a, a quick escape to get away from all the angry citizens because they would have probably um, come and gotten them. they are only, se- you know, only 70 people. It's just one family. Israel is just one little family at this time. So finally, Jacob returns to Bethel. Now he had promised God when he had the latter dream, that he would go back there and build him a real altar instead of just that stone uh, pillar. And he took his pillow and made it to a pillar. But he had promised him, but it took him 30 years to get back there. He's been in the land about 10 years, and he finally goes back to Bethel. And because he finally obeys, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him again, and he blessed him. And he reaffirmed his name change to Israel. And he proclaimed to him the same covenant promises that he had given to his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. And then he actually built an altar. He offered a sacrifice on it. And he did something for the very first time that we read about in scripture. He poured on the sacrifice what is called a drink offering that's in chapter 35 verse 34 if you want to circle it and say first time there's a drink offering in the scripture now later on 3534 35, 14. 14 yes I, know, I wrote 34 in my notes I, it is 14 3514 yeah there is no 34. Now, a drink offering was later prescribed in the book of Leviticus for the uh, the, uh, Jews to do. It's interesting because it is a picture of Jesus. A drink offering. One of your questions are, there's some other objects in this study this morning that are picture types of Jesus. One of them is the drink offering. The drink offering was never consumed. It was poured out. Now, Jesus is a he fulfills the drink offering because he was poured out for us wasn't he but he was not consumed was he because he rose bodily from the dead it'd be like a burnt sacrifice coming back to life so he is the fulfillment of the drink offering i just threw that in for free because this is about types all right then um well joseph's early life we're looking at his early life his early life was uh, full of um, living with the consequences of a failed father who um, we'll talk about this but he was a bad husband remember when he meant, went to meet Esau and how he put the concubines and their children out front in case they were the front line if Esau was going to kill anybody they'd go first and then behind them he had he, yeah that and then Leah and her children and then last of all was uh, Rachel and uh, Joseph, and he was behind all of that. <laughs> That's not being a good leader, is it? Um, so you know there was some resentment among his children, especially when he loved Joseph so much. He's a bad husband, bad father. Joseph had to live with the consequences of that, and we'll be talking about that. But his early life was also saddened by a bunch of deaths. I won't mention all of them, but the worst one was the early death of his mother, his his family was slowly traveling up a narrow ridge that led to the small village of Ephrata. Does that ring a bell? Ephrata? Ephrata later became known as Bethlehem. Bethlehem Ephrata. So they're just right outside. They're on their way to Hebron where he would be living, but they're passing by Bethlehem. They just get short of Bethlehem, and the, the, the caravan comes to a screeching halt because Rachel begins to cry out in pain. Now, she probably shouldn't have been traveling at this time because apparently she's very pregnant, uh, and she's go, she goes into labor. She can't go any further because her baby is coming. They're on the outskirts of the city where Ruth would meet Boaz, her kinsman redeemer, who pictured the Messiah. They're on the outskirts of the city where David, tending his father's sheep, would write many psalms concerning the coming Messiah. And they're on the outskirts of the city where, years later, a godly carpenter from Nazareth would walk beside a donkey carrying his very pregnant virgin wife, Mary, who would deliver the Messiah. It was outside Bethlehem that Joseph lost his mother. He was probably only six or seven years of age. Jacob lost his beloved wife. Do you remember when she said, Give me children or I die. And do you remember another occasion when Laban was searching through the tents? After he pursued them, he said, Somebody has stolen my gods. And she was sitting on them. And Jacob had said, If you find them, whoever you, you know, Whoever has them, let him die. Well, it was Rachel. So she did die, giving birth to Jacob's 12th son. She named him, as her spirit was departing, she named him Benoni, which means son of my sorrows. And that name pictures Christ in his first coming. But for the first time, Jacob actually named one of his children because he changed the name to son of my right hand. Picture of Jesus at his second coming. Isn't that fascinating? Both sons of Rachel have double names that picture Christ. Shortly after her death, we have another sorrowful incident that I hate to read about. But Jacob's oldest son, and this is in verse 22 of chapter 35, you're going to just have to go home and read these chapters because this is very hard. I don't have time to read them all. I wish I could. But in 3522, we learn that Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, committed adulterous incest. I guess I would call it adul- it's adultery and incest because he um, slept with Bilhah. Who's she? Well, she's one of the concubines of his dad. Um, a handmaid of Leah, and she is the mother of Reuben's two half-brothers, Dan and Naphtali. I, you know, I say it over and over again, who needs soap operas when you have the Bible? <laughs> now, that, that shameless, that is just horrible. Horrible. I don't know why he did it, but that shameless act lost Reuben the double portion of, Of the firstborn privilege. We learn this in chapter 49 verse 34. You know he's the firstborn. So he would get the double portion. of, Of the inheritance. But he lost that. Because of this sin. Who got it instead. Who got the double portion firstborn blessing. Instead of Reuben. Wait a minute, say it louder. Joseph, very good. Yesterday I got the wrong answer over and over again. It wasn't Judah, it was Joseph. He got the double portion firstborn blessing and that double portion went to his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. There is no tribe of Joseph, but there is a tribe of Manasseh and a tribe of Ephraim. He was the other firstborn son. Okay, Reuben was the firstborn son of Leah. Joseph was the firstborn son of Rachel. The concubines' firstborns did not count. Okay, so that's interesting. Now, who got the firstborn blessing to carry on the Messianic line? Judah, 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 the fourth son. Remember Leah almost predicted that when she named him. What did what does Judah mean? Anybody remember from last year? Anybody, you get a gold star. Yeah, gold star. Who said that? Did you say Mark? Who? Gold Star, that's wonderful. Praise. Pray I mean, praise. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, didn't he? Now Judah wasn't such a great guy either. You know what he did? Well, he he married a Canaanite woman, had three sons. The first two were so evil that the Lord took them. He slew them. Um, And then his wife died, and he wound up having intercourse with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who had dressed herself up as a temple prostitute. Can you believe what we talk about in here? These <laughs> young girls you just have to put your hands over your ears. <laughs> oh. So, you know, just these are the guys that are the patriarchs of the faith. You know? I don't think any of them were saved yet, except Joseph and maybe Benjamin, but they do get saved. All right, so it it is really amazing that such a young man of integrity and Christ-like virtues as Joseph came from Jacob's deeply dysfunctional family. So if you think you came from a dysfunctional family, I have news for you. There's hope. (laughs) There's hope for you. (laughs) There is not a single sin mentioned in Scripture about Joseph, and that contrasts greatly with his... All his family, including his dad and everybody. Was he a sinner? Yes, he was a sinner because he was a son of Adam and he wasn't virgin born. But the Holy Spirit did not inspire Moses to include so much as even a blemish in Joseph. We never, ever once hear him complain. Now, if you were betrayed by your own family and you were sold as a slave and you were just treated the way he was treated... And wound up in prison for um, 12 years and you were unjustly accused of s- a sexual crime? That's been in the news lately, hasn't it? Uh, would you, do you think there might be one little complaint that came out of you? I mean, I complain about Mosquitoes. But we never hear a complaint. We never see him compromise, and he could have compromised with Potiphar's wife on other occasions, I am sure. Adversity did not harden his character. And prosperity, because he did become extremely rich. Prosperity did not spoil him. He was the same in private as he was in public. He was born, and he was prepared by the potter's hands To represent who? Jesus, the Savior, who was utterly sinless. Even in his humanity, he was utterly sinless. So we never hear any blemish about Joseph. After his birth, the next direct mention in the scripture about Joseph, he is 17 years old. Now, I've speculated about the things he experienced as a child, but the next time we directly hear about him, he's 17. And we read, this is 37, move over to 37, and look at verse 3. We read how Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children. Is parental favoritism a good thing? No never really never if you have more than one child you need to just expand your heart and love them all equally and if you don't you don't let them know that in word or deed Jacob of all people should have known better because he came from a family where his father favored his brother Esau and his mother favored him so he should have known better parental partiality is an offense it's an offense to the children who are overlooked. Do you think they don't know if you love one of them more than them? Is there such a thing as sibling rivalry even without parental favoritism? <laughs> yes. And it can cause all kinds of domestic discord. And it often does the most harm to the favored child. It does because the others know it, and they dislike that child because of it. That's what happened in Joseph's life. There's not a lot of information about Joseph's young life, but certainly he must have been a very lonely boy for having grown up in a big family. Is it possible to grow up in a big family with a lot of siblings and still be lonely? Yes, I think sometimes if there's so many, you maybe get lost in the shuffle. And again, he's picturing Jesus. Did you know that Jesus came from a big family? He had four brothers and at least two sisters. So that means there were at least seven children, at least. Could have been more sisters. We don't know. Um, And yet, do you think he had a lonely childhood? I bet he did. I bet he did. After all, who wants to play with Mr. Perfect? Perfect. He never gets paddled. He always does everything right. Mommy just adores him. Mm, I think he also, and I think that's another way in which Joseph kind of pictured Jesus. Well, Jacob, he further exasperated the sibling jealousy of his sons when he presented Jacob with a special gift. What was that gift? Yes, yes. Now, at Christmas time, if you have multiple children or grandchildren, you give them all the same thing or very similar in price, you know. (laughs) You don't give one a big bicycle and the other ones you give a little uh, socks. Yeah. (laughs) You know what my son gave me last Christmas? A tick remover. (laughs) Well, I guess it was unique, but... One year he gave me a boomerang. You know, my husband got me a vacuum cleaner. All right. So anyway, he gave he gave Joseph his favorite son this beautiful full-length multicolored coat. Now, we learn from other passages in the Old Testament that robes of diverse colors were were worn as a mark of distinction for those of nobility or royalty. It was a coat, and I give you the Hebrew words in your notes, but the, the Hebrew means that the coat had full-length sleeves that you know, went all the way to the hands, and um, it went all the way to the feet, full, full length. And that was different from his brothers who would wear slee- uh, robes with short sleeves, and they'd go to the knees because they were working. Because that was a workman's robe. This was the, the robe of royalty. And so, again, this is not a good thing. But it does show us that J- Jacob is treating Joseph as a royal son before he is given his royal dreams and before long before he ever sat royally next to Pharaoh. The robe is another picture of Jesus. It, it is, because he is royal it talks of the many colors, his many faceted glories and attributes. And then we are told in the New Testament to put on Christ. It's a, you know, and he covers us with his righteousness from head to toe. It's another picture of Jesus. Well, the favor of Jacob for Joseph which climaxed with the coat, caused his brother's envy of him to turn to bitterness, which rooted so deeply in their hearts that they could not even speak peaceably to him. That means when they saw him, they wouldn't even say shalom. They wouldn't even speak to him. They couldn't say anything nice to him. That's in verse 4. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably. Unto him. That's pretty bad. That makes him really lonely. He's hated for his preferential position with his father. Was someone else hated because the father so loved him? Yes. And they hated him because of his goodness, his person. They couldn't get away with anything when he was around. Now, how do I know that? Well, look at verse 2. We learn in verse 2 that he brought his father a report of evil that was committed by the four sons of the handmaids that would be dan naphtali gad and asher i don't know what they did but they did something evil and he we would call it a tattletale wouldn't we but he gave the he told his father what they had done because whatever they did brought dishonor to god (laughs) and they were to be god's witnesses also, if he didn't report their evil, he would be complicit in their evil, wouldn't he? And they hated him for that, Mister Tattletale, because his light was shining upon their darkness, and they didn't like it. Again, that's how Jesus was. He reported evil. And, you know, oh, you hypocrites, you whited sepulchers. He always he wasn't afraid to point out evil, but they hated him for it. The envious, bitter hatred of his brothers was then further inflamed, it just keeps getting hotter and hotter, it's further inflamed when Joseph receives two dreams from God. Now God, this is interesting, I didn't realize this before, but God spoke directly to Abraham, didn't he? God, Abraham heard, you know, get thee out of Ur of the Chaldees and go to a land, I will show you. He heard from God numerous times. So God spoke directly to Abraham, he spoke directly to Isaac, and he spoke directly to Jacob. But he never once spoke directly to Joseph. Do you know that? Isn't that interesting? Of all people, Joseph was so good, but he never heard directly from God, ever. But he did hear from him through dreams. There are three pairs of dreams recorded for us in Joseph's life. Now, the first two are given to him. The second two were given to the chief baker and the chief butler. I don't know where the candlestick maker was. He he wasn't in prison. Um, And then the last two were given to Pharaoh, but I thought that was interesting. Well, in his first dream, which is in chapter 37, five, he talks about it. It says Joseph dreamed a dream and he, he told it to his brothers. He here's his dream. He and his brothers were out in a field and a harvest field and they were binding grain into sheaves. You know, can you picture a sheaf tall, you know, tall, they tie a rope around it and it stands up tall. So they're tying the grain into sheaves, and his, his sheaf is standing tall and straight, and his brother's sheaves all of a sudden <laughs> uh, bend, fall over and bow before his sheaf. Well, nobody needed an interpreter to understand what that meant. <laughs> and so their angry response to his revelation of his dream is this, and this is in verse 8. Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? They're mad about this dream. And then what what, what does it say next? They hated him yet the more. Now their words align with the words that Jesus shared in a parable. In Luke 19, he gave what is called the parable of the pounds. And in that parable, there was a certain nobleman who had come from a far country, and that speaks of him. He came from a far country heaven. And when he came, the people that he was to rule over said this, we will not have this man to reign over us. So again, Joseph's experience is picturing what Jesus would go through. The importance now of God-given dream communications to their own father, to Jacob. When did he have a dream? The latter dream? He shared that dream with them. Yeah, the latter dream. No, on his way into, uh, yeah, fleeing from Esau. He shared that dream with them, and they knew that that was from the Lord. And then... Also, we know that they heard about Laban's dream because he didn't kill his father, their father. So they knew dreams came from God, in their particular family at least. And so they should have, have re, should have had reverential awe when Joseph shared his dreams with them. I'll talk about the second dream in a minute. But did they? No. Their reaction to his dreams was the opposite. I mean, they're mad about it, and that indicates to us right there that they're not right with God. I think we might have known that anyway from their behavior, but they're not right at all with God, and that becomes even more obvious when they attempt to oppose God's will by selling Joseph as a slave. You know what they said when they did that? This is in chapter thirty-seven, twenty. They said, let's see what becomes of his dreams now. So in doing that, they are really, they're really trying to overrule God's will. Because God is saying Joseph will be the prominent one. He will be the leader of the family. Well, God sent Joseph a second dream. Again, he shared it with his family. This time, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars. How many brothers does he have? 11 stars bow down before him. They make obeisance to him. And this time we are told in verse 11 that his brothers envied him. Now that, I got to thinking about that. That's interesting. They envied him? If they believed that Joseph was merely inventing these dreams on his own, why would they envy him? They could envy they could invent a dream. They could, they could get up in the next morning and say to their family, well, now I had a dream and the whole world bowed before me. The reason they envied him is because they did actually believe the dreams were sent from God. And by, by the way, Joseph was not a liar, was he? He was Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. He would never lie. So I, they really did believe these dreams were from God. Now, many people have criticized Joseph, saying that he was spoiled, He was insensitive to his family for having shared with them his dreams, that he should have just kept it to himself. He's accused of being proud. He's accused of not caring how his words would affect them. And you can pick up commentaries and read that. They criticize him. Others defend him for sharing the dreams that God gave him. Now, he was not a dumb man. He was very smart, even at 17, And he obviously knew that these dreams would not go over very well with his brothers. You know, even causing them to hate and envy him more than they already did. And although, however, although it would, and he knew it, it would ostracize him even further from his family. He was duty bound to share God's revelation with them. You know, there was no scripture back then, was there? When somebody received revelation from God, they were bound. It was would be a sin of omission if they didn't share it. God spoke directly or appeared to his servants in those days in various forms, like when he wrestled with Jacob, or when he spoke to Moses from a burning bush, or he revealed truths through dreams. Now that we have the complete Word of God, he he doesn't do that. Well, I better not say that because I think he's doing it in a lot of Muslim countries right now, speaking to people through dreams, but it's not revelation, written revelation. He's revealing himself to them. Anyway, they didn't have the word of God back then, so that's how he communicated. One thing I want to throw in here is that his dream, you know, his first dream, which was about the sheaves, the grain from the earth, speaks of the position and power of, of Jesus on earth, The second dream, which is about the sun, the moon, and the stars, speaks of Jesus' position and power in the heavens. And doesn't it say that one day every knee shall bow, whether of things in heaven and earth or under the earth? Well, later in history, the Jews were enraged at Jesus, weren't they? For speaking out against evil. And for his light and purity shining on their darkness and for revealing the truth about himself. They tried to kill him when he said, my father and I are one. Whenever he spoke the truth, they didn't like it. And they knew that he knew that when he came here, he knew that they would hate him and they would envy him. And he would be rebuked and he would be accused of, of, you know, unrighteously. But he was obligated to this to speak the truth anyway, wasn't he? just like Joseph. I defend Joseph for what he did. Well, his first dream of the sheaves of grain bowing, that's a portrayal of the time when his brothers would come before him when he's in Egypt. He's the vizier of Egypt. That's a word I'll be using a lot. It means basically the prime minister. V-I-Z-I-E-R is what they were called. Second in power, and he is the one distributing the grain, the bread of life. They have to come before him, and what do they do? (laughs) They bow before him. Now, they don't know that they're fulfilling his dream, but they are, and they bow before him quite a number of times. Their sheaves were empty, his was full, and they need to come to him. The complete fulfillment of that dream will be at the time of the Lord's second coming. Do you know that some ancient Jewish scholars correctly interpreted Joseph's sheaf, which was standing tall and before which all the other sheaves bowed. They said that that sheaf was a type, a picture of the Messiah. That's good, and it is. The second dream, which involves the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowing down before Joseph, was fulfilled when his 11 brothers... Now, this is their second visit to Egypt because the first visit, Benjamin isn't with them. So there's only 10 of them that bow before him. The second dream is fulfilled when they've got Benjamin with them and all 11 of them bow before him. And those 11 brothers represent the small nation of Israel... Which um, will be that will be fulfilled at also at the second coming of Christ, when finally the house of Israel will acknowledge Him as her a Savior and Lord, and bow before Him, won't she? She will. She will recognize Jesus at last. You know, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers; they were shocked when he said, "I am Joseph." One day, Jesus will say to Israel, "I am Jesus, the one you betrayed and sold," etc. Well, when Joseph was 17, Jacob summoned him. His father summoned him. His 10 older brothers had drifted too far away from daddy, from the father. They had left Hebron. You know what Hebron means? That's where they were living. Hebron, interestingly, means fellowship. They were out of fellowship with the father. You know where those 10 brothers had gone? They had taken daddy's flocks, and they had gone to Shechem, now, why, oh, why would they go there? That's where two of them had killed everybody and, you know, they had robbed. That's where they were hated. I think they did that in rebellion of their father. I can't imagine why they would go there. But that's where they were. And dad got concerned. They'd been gone too long. They were out of fellowship. So he calls forth his beloved son and asks him to, to uh, go quite a distance. It was 60 miles away endanger himself and go to the brothers and tell him, come home, return to fellowship, return to Hebron, return to your father. Isn't that interesting? Are you thinking about Jesus? Now that shows me that Jacob did care about his other sons, didn't he? That he was willing to risk his most beloved son because it was dangerous. And I don't know why he sent him alone without servants, but he was alone. 60 miles, he could have been eaten by an animal or, you know, robbers or whatever. But, and what's, what's Joseph's immediate response to that summons? What does he say? He says, here am I. Like Jesus said, lo, I come, Father, I will obey your will. He, he's readily submissive to his father, even though he knew it would put his life in peril to travel. Sixty miles to seek his brothers in an evil place. He also knew his brothers didn't like him too much, you know. But he was ready to do it anyway. And then when he got there to Shechem, he even went the extra mile because he found out that his brothers weren't there anymore. They were in Dothan, which is another 20 miles further. So he went a total 80 miles interestingly if you look at verse 15 of 37 it talks about this man there's a certain man joseph has traveled 60 miles he gets to shechem he sees the field where he thought his brothers probably were had been but they're not there and he doesn't know where they are has no idea where they are they could have gone back home and he missed them But there's a certain man wandering in the, well, actually Joseph is wandering in the field, and this certain man finds him. He doesn't find the certain man, the certain man finds him. And the certain man asks him, what seekest thou? Now, is that interesting? Or is that interesting? Because the certain man happens to know where his brothers are he says oh well I actually heard them say that they went to Dothan now if that certain man had not been there see the the whole life of Joseph is about the providence of God he orchestrated everything he wanted to get Joseph to Egypt I'll tell you why in a minute and it says in Psalm 105 that he's the one who sent him there you might think it's the evil of the brothers but he's using man's evil for his good (laughs) who is that certain man I wonder if that certain man hadn't been there, and it could have been the preincarnate Christ, I don't know. I don't think it was just a random man. He was providentially pivotal to the whole thing. Because if he hadn't been there, Joseph might have turned around and gone back home. And never have been betrayed, never have gone to Egypt. And then he wouldn't have been able to save his whole family when the famine came. You see how it all worked out so perfect? So that verse is interesting. Now... Okay, so he finds out his brothers are in Dothan. He goes 20 more miles, and they see him. there in a the field, and they see him coming from a distance. How did they know who it was? His many-colored, yes, his many-colored coat. They could recognize that from afar off. And as soon as they see him, they say, oh, here comes that dreamer, daddy's boy. And they begin to plot. Ah, We're far away from dad. This is our opportunity. We can get rid of him and his dreams. So they begin to plot what they're going to do, and they conspire that they're going to kill him and then tell their dad that he must have been devoured by some evil beast. But Reuben, the firstborn, here's their plan, and he suggests, now he's kind of passive too. He should have been stronger But he does suggest that they not kill him. Let's not shed any blood, he says. Let's just throw him in that empty well over there. Dothan actually means two wells. So they're there with their sheep because there was one good well, but there was another well that apparently had dried up. Let's throw him in that pit, that well, and just let him starve to death. Let's not shed his blood. But he was planning to later come back and and get him out and take him home to dad. And maybe he would then be in good standing with dad again. Because right now, he wasn't too popular with his father after he had gone to bed with one of his concubines. So he's thinking about himself. Well, then Joseph arrives. And as soon as he arrives, they grab him. And they immediately, the first thing they did is they take that robe off of him. They strip that robe off. That's in verse 23. Was Jesus stripped of his robe? Yes. Now, the Hebrew word for stripping is interesting because it's exactly the same word for skinning an animal. So put away any sanitized, kid-friendly version that you likely heard in Sunday school about this story. You know, usually you picture Joseph as a little guy, and he's kind of just taken and thrown in this little shallow pit. There was nothing friendly about this. This was, there was no tenderness. It was a violent attack, a mean, cruel, violent attack that left him exposed and shamed and cast into a waterless cistern. The Hebrew term, when they cast him into the cistern, the Hebrew means, it's the same term for discarding a dead carcass. Awful, isn't it? Skinning an animal. I'm sure he was down there bruised and probably bleeding, on the hard, stony floor of the well, and they intended to let him literally starve to death. Now, we know how cruel they were because they admit this later on in chapter 42, verse 21. They're in front of Joseph when he's the vizier of Egypt, but they don't think he understands them because they're speaking in Hebrew. And he's pretended he doesn't know Hebrew. But here's what they said to one another. 42, 21. We are verily guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us and we would not hear. They were callous. They were cruel. And remember, these boys are all around his age. Reuben is only seven years older than him. He's 17. So how old is Reuben? 24. They're 24, you know, all the way down to 17. So they're just really young still, really. And then they further show their callousness because after he's in the pit and he's screaming his anguish of his soul, what do they do? It says they sit down to eat bread. That reminds me of something else. The Roman soldiers, what do they do? When Jesus is on the cross, they sit down there gambling for his coat, casting lots. Well, whatever Reuben's motive might have been, God used his counsel to prevent Joseph's death. You know, without Reuben, Joseph would have been put to death, okay? So Reuben, Reuben did that good thing. So don't feel so guilty when you eat a Reuben sandwich. <laughs> but shortly, I don't, I don't know where Reuben went, but shortly after they threw Joseph into the pit, Reuben disappears, from the scene i i don't know where he went but he's gone and in his unexplained absence that allowed for judah to suddenly get inspired to profit from joseph's removal from their lives let's not just let him starve to death let's make a little money now how did that idea pop into his head he looked up and just at the appropriate time when Reuben isn't there, what is providentially moving by them? An Ishmaelite caravan on their way to Egypt. It's, all, it's just all orchestrated by God. Well, so that's what they do. They sell him. They sell him for 20 pieces of silver. That was the going price for a slave at that time. By the time of Jesus, there had been inflation. So the going price for a slave at the time of Jesus was 30 pieces of silver. And they, sh- they turn him over to the Gentiles. Ishmaelites were considered Gentiles. It wasn't Jesus turned over to the Gentiles, the Romans? All right, so then Ro- uh, Reuben returns and he sees the empty pit. He tears his clothes. He's grieving, but he's not really grieving about Joseph. He hears that he's been sold as a slave to Egypt. He is grieving about himself. Because he says, and I, whither shall I go? As the oldest, he knew he would be held responsible for the disappearance of Joseph. So he is all concerned about himself. He's going to be on even worse terms with his father. Well, this is all just so beautifully orchestrated. Because think of this. If, he, if the brothers had still been in Shechem, they never would have seen the passing Ishmaelite caravan. But when they went to Dothan, Dothan was right, Situated on a major trade route. So that's why they could see the Ishmaelite caravan passing by on its way to Egypt. You know, consider everything. The certain man in the field, Reuben, and all the timing of everything. God wants to get Joseph to Egypt. Why? Well, because by moving Joseph to Egypt, not only was he going to save his whole family... You know, if the brothers had been successful in killing Joseph, they all would have died later in the famine. (laughs) So God is, you know, helping them in spite of themselves. Um, But he wants to get he wants to get this little infant nation of 70 people into the womb of Egypt. So that there they can be nurtured and preserved from the corrupting influence of living with the Canaanites. Now you say, well, the Egyptians are bad too. What, were were the Canaanites already having more of an influence on Jacob's family than Jacob's family was having on the Canaanites? Yeah. yeah. I mean, like I said, what was Dinah doing with the daughters of the land? She should never have been in Shechem alone. And then we heard that Judah married a Canaanite woman and had three boys and they were awful. And, and Judah, uh, you know, his, well, not Judah, the, uh, the Shechemites, they wanted to intermarry. But here's what's interesting. In Egypt, they'd be safe from amalgamating, from intermarriage, because the Egyptians were one of the most bigoted racial people there ever were. And they would have nothing to do with Jacob's family. They were unclean because they were shepherds. And it says in the scripture in 4634 that that shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. That's why they put them in a special land, the land of Goshen. We'll talk more about their bigotry, but they would not intermarry. And when Israel was in Egypt, she grew, she multiplied, she prospered. So God had a plan. Well, the sons of Israel, as I said, minus Reuben and minus Benjamin, they sold Joseph for 20 pieces of of silver passed him to the gentiles they were not only being cold and cruel to joseph but who else his father their father weren't they i think this was revenge on their father because they knew he would be broken hearted but what do they do they they take his robe and they they dip it they cover it with blood from a goat kids blood now isn't that interesting they're going to deceive their father into believing Joseph is dead by using the blood of a kid. How did Jacob deceive his father? Kid, killed two kids. One was, well, both of them, I guess, were used to make savory venison, what he, Isaac thought was savory venison. It was really savory kid meat. <laughs> and then the, his mother used the kid's skin to make him hairy like Esau. You see what goes around, comes around in that fascinating, that one little detail there. Well, it's interesting, too, because Jacob's name was changed to what? Israel. He was deceived into thinking that his beloved son was dead. He grieved for him for 22 years when he really didn't need to because he wasn't dead at all. He was seated at the right hand of the power on high. <laughs> Wasn't Israel also deceived? Wasn't she? When the religious rulers paid the Roman soldiers to lie about what happened at the tomb? It's all so intertwined and fascinating. And I give you a list of, they say that there's as many as a hundred ways in which Joseph serves as a type of Jesus. Now, just in the chapters we covered this morning, I think I've got 21 different ways. Um, I've talked about most of them, but there's one more I want to throw in before you leave, and that is about Judah. Look at number 20. Who suggested that Jesus be sold as the price of a slave to the passing caravan? Judah, you know what his name is in Hebrew? Yehuda. He suggested that they profit from their betrayal. Who was it who betrayed Jesus to make for himself a prophet? Judas, Judas and you know what his name is in Hebrew? Yehuda, the same name. Isn't that interesting? I had never thought of that one, so I did want to point that out. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for your, your word. It is so rich and deep and true and fascinating and full of all kinds of different layers that we can just keep going deeper and deeper and pray that we've had spiritual heartburn this morning. I know I didn't when I studied this. Thank you for the life of Joseph, which points to the greater Joseph, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who did suffer and die for us and is now seated royally where he deserves to be seated as the God man at your right hand. And we look forward to the second coming any day now when he returns as the lion from the tribe of Judah and how we see your grace and that you used Judah, a man like that, that you used any of these men so frail and weak and sinful, but then we think of ourselves and we thank you that you reach down and save us because we're just as awful in our hearts. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your salvation. If there's one here who has never asked you to be her Lord and Savior, I pray her eyes will be open to the truth of who you are and she will get saved this very day. And we ask these things in your blessed name. Amen.